This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Explore radical ideas relating to earth renewal. Today we're speaking with Peter Michael Bauer. Peter is the executive director of Rewild Portland, an environmental education nonprofit that uses hands on workshops and classes to teach earth based arts, skills, and technologies. He is also the founder and a regular contributor to Rewild.com. Hey, Peter. Hello. So kind of you to join us. I've heard a lot of definitions of rewilding. Some folks talk about it in terms of going back to a hunter-gatherer lifestyle, while others like Dave Foreman talk about it in terms of a conservation or a restoration method involving bringing back the large mammals of the Pleistocene epoch, or, or there's the, the psychological rewilding. Miles Olson, who was a recent guest, talks about the spark of spontaneity. So... There's all these definitions floating around, and I'd love to hear your definition. And what type of rewilding do you think is possible, given the obstacles of modern civilization? I think all of our definitions of rewilding are actually the same, but the way that um, the depth that we choose to fully follow that definition is different. And what I mean by that is rewilding just means undoing domestication or, uh, you know, especially like in conservation biology, rewilding is uh, reintroduction of species. It's um, trying to return a habitat to its uh, quote unquote wild state. Um, and wild is the opposite of domestication. So to what extent are we going to follow that thread? 
And I'd like to say that, you know, a lot of conservation biologists, they're on this kick right now of introducing apex predators like the wolf, but they don't recognize humans as one of those apex predators, which is very unfortunate. And that's where, in my mind, human rewilding is part of their ideology, but they haven't quite reached it yet. And part of that, I think, is because you have people like um, George Monbiot or Monbi, I don't know how to say his last name. George Monbio. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> he and a lot of those folks don't have the backing of study with indigenous peoples because obviously in Europe, human culture as central to the ecosystem disappeared a long time ago uh, or didn't disappear, was destroyed a long time ago. Whereas around the globe, you have more contemporary or modern indigenous people that um, have all of these practices that show how to fit into an ecosystem as humans. So, you know, as far as rewilding goes, they haven't quite hit the human component where then you have people that are, um, you know, from the, sort of the perspective I come from where I'm looking around at this culture it looks very destructive to me. I don't think that it's going to be able to continue for very much longer. Um, and in my mind, the more wild or self-willed state existed before the advent of hierarchy and empire, before the advent of agricultural civilization, which is what created domestication to begin with. And so from my perspective, if we want to live a sustainable way of life, we need to return to the way we were living before the advent of agricultural civilization. And I don't mean return in the exact same way. Obviously, the world has changed. So it's not uh, going back to the way things were. It's a moving forward or just, uh, I, I don't even really like looking at things as going back or forward. We're just changing the way we're living to mirror the techniques of land management that our ancestors were doing for millions of years that didn't destroy the planet or cause the largest megafauna extinction, the sixth largest megafauna extinction. Um, and I think there's going to be a marriage of all of those forms of rewilding, whether it happens sort of on a institutional level or if it happens just kind of grassroots level. Um, I think at some point, all of the research is going to point to that and everybody's going to end up coming together. There's this thing that I say to people, which is that all paths lead to rewilding. Um, even if you look at like the paleo diet, for example, which a lot of people are starting to come to rewilding from that end of things now, because you realize that our diets are messed up. Well, when were our diets not messed up? before the advent of agriculture. So then you start looking at all these other aspects of our health, and then that links to the ecosystem, and then you realize that hunter-gatherers were not destroying the planet. So then it, it expands your idea into rewilding, not just something like the paleo diet. So from my perspective, rewilding is to return to a more self-willed state. It's the process of undoing domestication. And the way that I go about doing that is by educating people on prehistory and how our ancestors lived before the advent of agriculture and how contemporary indigenous people still practice those traditions around the globe where they haven't been colonized or completely destroyed. At some point, whether it's peak oil or peak water, we're almost forced to rewild. Before that happens, what are some tangible things that people can do to rewild, whether they're living in an urban environment or in a rural environment? I think the most important thing in rewilding 
whether it's uh, in an urban context or a wild context, is to start replanting native plants, and in particular, edible ones. They're going to be the most climate change resistant plants or uh, most adaptable to climate change because they're used to the areas that are in. So they're used to fluctuations in climate, um, whereas non-native plants are going to be a lot more susceptible to climate change. But also part of the thing is that it's not just plants, it's also insects. There's a relationship between plants and insects and everything. You know, people are like, oh, I don't need to plant native plants. It's not that big of a deal. You know, we can find other things, but they're not, they're kind of like isolating native plants as if they exist in a vacuum. They don't. Um, a great example is right now, and I've, I keep mentioning this cause it's a great example. Um, through our partnership with Portland parks, we found out that, uh, through, sorry, my organization rewild Portland is a nonprofit and we do um, a free class on the last Saturday of every month. And, um, Every once in a while, we do a food. Every spring, we do stinging nettle as a food. And we wanted to do it in the parks. And they told us that we could do the Skillshare, but that we couldn't harvest from the parks. And that's because the biologists have been studying the butterfly populations. And the admiral butterfly lays its eggs on the baby nettles as it's coming out of the ground. Well, that's not that big of a deal uh, to forage for some, but you have a thousand urban foragers going to the same parks, and each of them take a handful of nettles and what they're doing is decimating this population of butterflies. So how do you combat that? You know, there's this idea that plants exist in a vacuum. They don't realize that they're killing a butterfly, which is a pollinator, which is all, you know, there's all kinds of interwoven animals and plants in an ecosystem. And so what we do is to plant back more nettles. I mean, nettles are really kind of like a weed. You don't really need to plant them back unless you're living in an urban environment where they've been removed because people don't like them. Um, the populations of butterfly are probably doing better outside of city limits where nettle is still growing all over the place. But then you have elevation change, which may affect the insects. So anyway, one of the things that we do at our Skillshare, which is in an urban setting, is to transplant nettles from the wild and give them to people to take home and plant in their yards. And that's going to encourage people to be more aware of plants. It's going to give them land tending ethic and it's going to provide more habitat for butterflies. So it's not like you have to do just kind of one thing. Um, the idea from my perspective is to overlap as many things as possible to get people interacting and rewilding from many different layers. You brought up a few good points in your last response. One, Biodiversity brings resilience to an ecosystem, so continuing to plant more, and especially plant more than we take, is really important. Um, but also this idea of over-harvesting, because wild foraging has kind of gotten this pickup in modern culture, yeah. and people are really excited, and of course it is exciting, it's beautiful to be able to go and mm -hmm. find wild foods and forage them, but I think most of the time we don't realize that because we're so in this consumptive mindset that we can always go to the market and we can always buy more that, Oh, you find a patch of chanterelles or nettles and you could just take them all. And it's, you might not think further than that, but I'd love to, you know, dive even deeper into the issues of over harvesting, over foraging and how we can be respectful when, if we do choose to do those acts and, 
What are some of the endangered species that you see of wild foraged foods? And what does it mean to tend the wild? How indigenous people were able to forage for wild foods without pushing it to its limit? Um, cool. <laughs> A lot of questions. Um, so uh, over-harvesting is a, ma- a major issue because uh, as foraging becomes more and more trendy, obviously it's affecting uh, the local ecosystems and in particular urban systems where you might have a thousand people and, you know, it's a good foraging ethic to not take everything that you see, to just take, you know, a third of uh, an area of plants or leave some behind, you know, that's a classic foraging ethic. But the problem is if you're doing it in a setting where there's a thousand other foragers and they're all coming out to the same places, they might not see each other, but they're all thinking, oh, I'm just going to take a handful of this. And then the entire patch is decimated. Um, An example of ecosystems not necessarily being over-harvested, but um, transformed through colonialism is the Willamette Valley where I live um, in Portland was historically or pre-contact an oak savanna that was managed by native people. Um, You know, the Northwest is kind of known for its trees, but it's funny because the valley actually didn't have really many evergreen trees, and that's because the Kalapuya native people who live here were burning it every year to prevent the growth of Douglas firs, but encourage and maintain oak savanna, which produce acorns, which uh, were a staple of their diet. And, you know, there's this distinction between hunter-gatherers and agriculturalists. And people have this idea that hunter-gatherers sort of aimlessly wander the landscape in search of food. They don't realize or recognize that they're consciously managing the landscapes that they are a part of. One of the biggest ways they do that is through fire and it's a destructive force, but it also returns nutrients to the soil. Um, obviously, you know you can see where mycelium love after a burn that's not too heavy. Um, that's often places where people will go to get like morals and things like that are in recently burned areas. Um, and that's because the ground is growing back. It's building more soil after the catastrophe. But then it also creates mixed forests. So you wouldn't burn down an entire forest. You'd burn a little section of it and you create uh, an ecotone or an edge between habitats. So you're, now you're created two kinds of habitat, which is where biodiversity flourishes, is on edges. It's basically working with forest succession. It's mimicking catastrophe, but then allowing the forest to rebound all the way to a climax forest of old growth trees. Whereas agricultural farming is only recognizable to Europeans as the real kind of farming because of its destructive nature that's visible on the landscape. And instead of fire, which agriculturalists begin using fire and eventually, and still use fire actually, but eventually use tilling soil with a plow, which goes very deep, um, destroys the rhizomal connections in the soil and allow the soil to blow away and get flushed away in rains. So when you have those two different systems and one people have been using agriculture for so many years, they don't even understand what land tending would look like if you weren't 
dragging a plow through a soil and creating a monocrop, but instead letting nature return to a climax forest. Because agriculturalists, we subsist on primary plants, wheat and grains, and those things require a field habitat to grow. So we have to, instead of just burning down a forest, we burn it down, plow it, and then keep it that way by burning it and plowing it every single year. Um, whereas hunter-gatherer land management is sort of working those gardens along a nomadic circuit. So it's not that they're nomads that wander, it's that they're nomads that work the same areas year after year, traveling in a giant hoop, basically, on the landscape from garden to garden. No, I'm here. I'm, I, I was just thinking about fire ecology and how we've been conditioned to be extremely fearful of fire and fire is the enemy and Smokey the Bear and all of these uh, images from childhood that come up with fire. And recently I was studying fire ecology up in Canada and it was so interesting to understand the history that these forests of the Pacific Northwest evolved with fire and yeah. fire did foster biodiversity and food for the indigenous hunter gatherers and 
if you have these tree farms where there's a monocrop tree and they're really tightly squished together and they have all of these limbs coming out which create ladder fuels which then can create crown fires you know we're mm. seeing these more destructive fires because mm. we're stopping the natural occurrence of fires plus we're monocropping them now right. an old growth forest a fire sweeping through an old growth forest their bark is so strong that they can withstand fires and usually the fires in old growth are ground fires because you don't have all of the fuel that has been building up so it's an extremely interesting topic that we should re-establish into our modern context and not be so fearful i mean of course not being nomadic anymore we're building these houses right in where you know a a natural fire could occur which is like another step of not really working with the land as it is but trying to force our exactly desire on the land and also when you were talking i was visualizing how to tend the wild on a large scale Mm -hmm. you know we have huge industrial agriculture millions of acres it's not going to continue to be able to produce food in the way it has been for the last hundred years so do you how do you see a transition from going from monocropped industrial agriculture to a tending the wild type perennial system um it's difficult to kind of gauge that because there's so many barriers there's just so many different kinds of scenarios i mean right now people who own property are practicing these kind of controlled burns Native people on reservations are practicing these kinds of burns, um, and and not just burning, but obviously all the other land management techniques, replanting, seeding. But on a large scale, I have a difficult time seeing how it's going to happen as long as empire exists. Because even just right now, we're not even talking food we're talking water now water is way more essential than food in a sense you know you'll die three days without water food you can starve a couple of weeks to a couple of months um so water is a lot more primary than food and right now in the columbia river basin we're fighting against nestle who is trying to get rights to a natural spring on public land so that they can create a bottling plant, which is disgusting in my mind. I just dislike any kind of part of empire or civilization in general, but it's particularly disgusting because we're in a drought at the moment. Oregon, California, Washington, we're all in droughts. And meanwhile, there's a corporation that the government is just giving the rights to clean water to then charge people money for Um, which to me is just sort of the quintessential insanity of this entire culture that our government and uh, is actually just partners with the corporations who are destroying the planet. And we don't really have the power to stop them on a scale that they need to be stopped. This is the problem with climate change as well. We're powerless to really change the governments because the governments aren't set up to change the way we need them to. And so I don't really see a way forward that doesn't include a revolution of some kind. And I don't think that a revolution of a changing of hands of a leader or a change of a government system is going to be adequate. I really don't see a a massive change happening until the entire thing collapses. 
and people have to create these changes on a smaller scale within their own communities because the system just isn't set up for a large scale kind of a change, which is really unfortunate for us because it's the most intense, destructive era that humans have ever lived through. Aside from maybe when our population declined to about 10,000, 90,000 years ago before we left Africa. You know, I can't think of a, of a time that's sort of been more critical for the human species than that, um, than our near extinction 90,000 years ago. But of course, there's so much more extinctions happening now that it won't be surprising if we end up on that chain. Um, of course, I wouldn't like that to happen, but I think in order for that not to happen, there's going to need to be massive change, and that change is going to require a change of power, and a change of power is a revolution. So it's difficult to gauge, you know, what are we doing now to kind of get ready for that? Because in my mind, it's, there's no question that it's going to happen. It's how are we going to be prepared from now and how are we going to move forward from now so that as that transition happens, as that revolution happens, there will be a, a chance for humans to relearn these old skills so that as we go through it, we'll be able to continue on beyond whatever major transformations and transitions are going to happen in the next thousand years with climate change, with diseases with the transformation of power from an empire to something else. Any big stress on our environment and culture is going to require and cause a change. So I can't really say what one scenario is going to be over the next, but what I do in my mind is try to plan for a way that will be able to exist through any possible future. So say I'm completely wrong, civilization continues, everything is fine, what is our next step? And how could I plan it in such a way that it would also be for the complete collapse of our system, say, tomorrow? And that, to me, is just following these principles of land management. On a level, you have people that work in the system and people who work outside of the system. So in my mind, when I created Rewild Portland, I wanted it to be an organizational model for how to move forward through economic collapse, through ecological collapse, through peak oil energy crisis? How can we create a model that if the shit hit the fan, so to speak, and they really needed to start looking at transitional models, where are they going to look? And so Rewild Portland has been, you know, quote unquote, within the system, um, not necessarily looking to reform a system, but working within the system's boundaries to the extent that we can so that when a change like that happens, and people are looking for models, they'll be able to see one that exists and then use that, a piggyback on it, you know, uh, use us as a, as a sort of a council um, for moving forward. And if that doesn't happen, then Rewild Portland has already created a grassroots community that can also move forward through a disaster, regardless of whether the city's looking to us as a model or not. And for the audience who may not have researched Rewild Portland before this interview, would you mind just giving us a description of the organization, the kind of things you do there, and what you, how you see people shift after taking um, classes with you or being involved in this community? Cool. 
So Rewild Portland is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and our mission is to promote cultural and environmental resilience through the education of earth-based arts, traditions, and technologies. Um, that was sort of the broadest way I could think for people to kind of understand what rewilding means. Um, and what we do is community building, education of ancestral skills, and ecological restoration. And we try to connect all three of those things together seamlessly um, or integrated in each of our programs. On a, an example of one of our flagship programs is English ivy basket weaving. So we teach people how to remove an invasive species, restore native habitat, and then at the same time weave a basket with it. So we're keeping alive ancestral traditions of basket weaving, and at the same time we're able to restore habitat and at the same time, throughout the weaving class, we build a community of people that are, you know, weaving is one of the greatest sort of community building things because you're just hanging out with people in the forest chatting for hours while you're working on projects together. So you're having this shared experience, bonding, but then at the same time, you're able to create a deeper connection with people through conversations. And all these kinds of conversations come up during the classes as well of, of you know, what is rewilding and how are we doing it? And so I always use the English Ivy as sort of a flagship description of what we do. Uh, but we do a free class on the last Saturday of every month that's in partnership with Portland Parks. And we switch from a wild edible food to a craft to a community skill. So an example would be um, for our food, we do acorn processing in the fall. And for all of our food classes, we don't just teach what's edible and how to eat it. We teach how to plant it back we teach an ethic of restoring those species and keeping them living. And then through our skills, we do things like knife sharpening, basket weaving, hide tanning, kind of all the sort of old ancestral skills. Uh, and then for our cultural skills, it's more about community building, like uh, how children can be mentored in a nature-based setting or how indigenous people mentored their children, how to create a ritual together and what that means and why that's important. One of our upcoming themes is nature-based therapy, so how to be in nature and connect on a deeper level. Um, so all of these things kind of go hand in hand and are interrelated. So it's hard to kind of isolate all these aspects of rewilding as their own thing since it's a complete, basically you're creating an entirely new culture, so you have to have all these different elements that all play together. Um, and that's kind of what we're doing with Rewild is to inspire people to create a new culture. And you also have, well, first of all, thank you for doing this work. Mm -hmm. I love the English Ivy restoring, learning these techniques, building community, stacking your functions. It's beautiful, the work that you do. And I hope more people get on board with Rewild Portland and see your model and potentially start things like this in their communities, in their cities, because it'd be incredible to have larger networks of this happening and mm. really building those wider connections. Totally. Which you do again on your website, rewild.com, which seems to be able to spread to even wider groups. Yeah, originally... Um you know, I tried to do this project where I was going to live like a hunter-gatherer for a year in the city. And 
I wanted to catalog it so that it would inspire other people to do that as well. Um, and so I created a blog. I created a sort of an alias alter ego, Urban Scout, um, which was not, which I consider one of my muses. It's not really my voice, but it's a voice that I hear. Um, and so I created a blog, and within about a week, I realized that it was going to be impossible for me to do this, and not impossible for everybody. I'm sure there's plenty of sort of rugged individualist survivalists out there who could pull off living as a hunter-gatherer on their own in a city environment. But And there's people who do it. There are homeless people who do that. <laughs> just, that's how they live. Um, but for me, I wanted a hunter-gatherer culture, not just doing it by myself. And I wanted the way of life. To me, the way of life isn't surviving by myself in the woods or in the city or wherever. It's living in a tribe. Humans evolved as social organisms socially organized, much like a pack of wolves or a beehive. So we have this inkling to live together and to work together. I'm a very social person. I have to be around people. Uh, I'm also kind of a recluse, but I need to be around people. And trying to do this project by myself just didn't really pan out. So I started writing about rewilding, writing essays, and I eventually compiled them into a book called Rewild or Die, during this process, I realized that I wanted to connect people around the world to encourage them to rewild as well. So part of my blog was this website, rewild.info, which now is actually just at rewild.com. Um, and it's an international forum for discussing rewilding and all of the aspects that are involved with that. After doing that for years, we realized that I'd spent all this time focusing on encouraging people around the world to rewild that I hadn't focused enough time here on my local community. And that was sort of the drive for me to create Rewild Portland. So for the last few years, I've focused on Rewild Portland. And now we're doing a site redesign for rewild.com and using it to promote rewilding on a larger scale again. It never went away. It just kind of faded for a little while while we were all kind of doing our own rewild projects. And it's picked up quite a bit again. And now that Rewild Portland is super successful in my mind, I'd like to be able to use Rewild.com as sort of a platform for people to connect about rewilding in English-speaking countries, I should say. That's one of our limitations. We're back with Peter Michael Bauer, founder of Rewild.com. 
where there was an essay blogged recently called Decolonizing the Primitive Skills Movement by an author going by the name On Stolen Land. And I'd like to bring it to the table and get your response, Peter. Quote, Historically, the desire to live on indigenous land and to feel connected to it bodily, emotionally, spiritually, has been the normative function of settlers, says Scott Morganson in his essay, Unsettling Settler Desires. He points out that so-called alternative settler cultures, occupying and traversing stolen indigenous land, variously characterized by squatting, hoboism, anarchism, neo-paganism, communalism, and other sub- and counter-cultural practices, are in fact an extension of colonialism, including the -the back-to-the-land primitive skills community, primarily because there is little critique questioning our continued occupation of stolen land and responsibility as colonizers. Morganson says that Historically, non-natives became settlers by adapting indigenous dwelling sites, travel routes, place names, modes of gathering or cultivating food, and spiritual knowledge and practices. Participants in such alternative settler cultures, including the primitive skills community, often appreciate indigenous culture and pursue supposedly indigenous ways of life, supposedly in solidarity with indigenous people. It seems like gathering the fruits of the wild should be a sustainable and perhaps politically neutral alternative to the destructive forces of large-scale agriculture and resource extraction. But Dakota activist Wazia Tawin brings up an excellent point. If colonizers are practicing sugar bushing or wild ricing within Dakota homeland, while most of our people live in exile, They become just the latest wave of colonizers exploiting indigenous resources at indigenous expense, end quote. Oh, well, you know, (laughs) it seems that everyone alive today was born into a fragmented, conflict-laden world, and we yearn for the wholeness and groundedness that we've lost. But it's true that we also have to look beyond our own personal agenda and ask ourselves, What are we doing to tear down these obstacles that keep Native people in a state of exile from their lands and ancestral ways? The author suggests, if I can read on for a moment, that you, quote, understand your colonizer status and take a stance. Retrace your own indigenous roots. Understand and work to undo white supremacist and patriarchal conditioning. Establish respectful communications with Native tribes and embrace indigenous values while maintaining a critical eye for cultural appropriation, unquote. I do agree with the suggestions, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on this idea that the rewilding movement is tainted by neocolonialism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big one. <laughs> yeah, the... I am still navig. I mean, I think it's kind of a thing where this conversation is almost a never-ending conversation. I want to make rewilding accessible to as many people as possible, and I want to make sure that I'm using whatever privilege I have to give back to the people whose land this is and give back to the people whose ancestors tended this place in a sustainable way 
for as long as possible um, and continue to do so today. So there's an element that I disagree with in that essay. It's not even that there's a disagreement, is that I feel like there's yes and. In improvisational theater, there's this idea when you're improvising with someone else on stage that you never say no to the other person. So when the other person improvises something that adds to the scene, you're never supposed to say no because that cuts off the flow of improvisation. You say yes and. I often kind of take this idea and apply it to conversations of complexity such as this. Um, in my mind, rewilding is not neocolonialism, although there are people who rewild in a way that is neocolonialism because they haven't analyzed the kinds of things that we're talking about, because they haven't begun this conversation. It is about returning to a way of life that everyone lived that's sustainable, that is a stateless, non-colonist perspective. To me, neocolonialism is starting a new colony of the same sort of ideas. So, you know, like a permaculture village, is that neocolonialism? If you buy private property and you start a permaculture village or something on it, to me, that's kind of the same as start buying a property to do a rewilding project on it you're participating in colonialist culture to start your own little privileged colony in a sense. At the same time, however, it's not the same as, uh, I don't think you can equate it the same as somebody who just buys property to like put a, a cattle ranch on it or a factory farm. If people are trying to restore a habitat to the, or if they're using their privilege in a sense, for example, if they're born with white privilege and they're able to have more access to land, for example, and they use that to buy the land to then return to native habitat, I have a hard time seeing how that's neocolonialism, in particular if they go out of their way to do things such as create collaborative process between native cultures for like access to that land and access to the resources, for example, like basket weaving materials or native foods and things like that. To me, it's all about creating collaborations that make it not neo-colonial. But that's, it's a difficult area to navigate because I think, you know, there's the decolonization movement, which from my understanding of it and from what I've read, and I plan to interview um, a couple of the people in it, to gain more clarity, to see how rewilding and decolonization can come together. But in my mind, decolonization isn't necessarily anti-state. It's more about having autonomy. So in indigenous autonomy from colonialist ideas. So they would have their own government, similar to, I guess, a reservation, but on their actual land. Decolonization literally means to stop farming or to stop tilling the soil. Colony, the word colere is Latin, it's Roman, and it means to till the soil. So again, we're, we're roping back around into what rewilding means to stop farming, to stop those destructive practices of agriculture. However, it's not necessarily what it means to indigenous people who are decolonizing. It has 
more to do with, um, I think, ending the culture of occupation, but not necessarily ending the, the state, the culture of, of a state. And so in that regard, I don't know where the collaboration can happen, which is why I'm, I need to investigate it further. And it's a conversation that's going to go on forever. You know, I have plenty of Native friends who tell me that ancestral skills are everybody's birthright, that anybody who's trying to return to this ancestral way of life is decolonizing. And then I have friends who on the totally other end of the spectrum who basically want anybody who doesn't have uh, an indigenous ancestral heritage in the United States to leave. So you have like this extreme spectrum of what that means. And I don't particularly judge any of those perspectives. I mean, if I were indigenous to this place, I would probably be one of the people advocating for everyone who doesn't have it to leave. (laughs) Um, Because I'm just super political in that kind of way. But at the same time, I don't have a place to go to. Uh, There's this idea that everybody should leave here, but then where do they go? We're all orphans. So I'm trying to find the area where decolonization and rewilding intersect because this is one of the most important conversations that I think we need to have to find that common ground. Well, like you said, it's an extremely complex experience and thought process and navigating through how to live with respect to the indigenous people whose land people now inhabit or respecting the earth when we're foraging and living off of her just walking consciously through this life and giving credit and appreciation and living with pure intention for sharing and stewarding. Um, We are so entrenched in the system. And like you were saying earlier, you know, if you have the privilege to buy land and restore it, or if you have the privilege to be able to create an alternative culture that you can thrive in um you know do you not do that because you are on stolen land or where you know how where do you go what do you do how where would you go if you left the united states when your passport's here i mean it's just so intertwined with this globalized government and power and control and capitalism it's like wow this is completely overwhelming to try to understand how to really live with purity. And so I'm in that same boat. And I think many people are in that boat wanting to really be stewards of this earth and to the people and the animal and the plants, but not really having a clear path to do that on because it's not the mainstream. And we have a lot of these minor an amazing cultural um, alternatives happening that aren't necessarily connected. And so I'm really happy about rewild.com that you are trying to connect all these dots from all over the place so that we can build a stronger network to really come together. And on that note, in terms of land and trying to separate and trying to create alternative modes of power and uh, governance, I wondered if you are involved in or could explain to us the Cascadian bioregion movement and what is going on up there? What is this idea of Cascadia and separating from the United States? And do you think that's a good idea? Um, do, you, do you have any 
opinions on on why that movement would work or wouldn't? I don't really have any opinions on it. The the premise is that um, it's a bioregional state. So you have, uh, instead of arbitrary lines, you have lines of your state drawn based on watersheds. And so the Cascadia watershed goes all the way from like British Columbia to Northern California. Um, and the idea is that bioregions should be are, are able to be more sustainable because if your government is based on the bioregion, it's linked to the land base. And that means you're paying more attention to those aspects, I guess. Um, in my mind, again, when I think of sort of the inevitabilities of revolution and transformation, I see the Cascadia Free State as a potential transition to whatever life we're going to live beyond that. But I don't particularly put very much stock in state-based governments because I don't think that humans are meant to live on that scale. I don't really particularly care much for any kind of state-based government, even if it's more sustainable than what we have now. I have this feeling that there won't really be those kinds of entities in the future if agriculture becomes very difficult, then our form of social organization is going to change very radically. And in my mind, things will revert back to ways of living before that era, more village to village rather than a state-based government. And if you're going village to village, then you're not even looking at uh, bioregion, you're looking at like microclimates (laughs) in particular places. I work with some of the people who do a lot of Cascadia advocacy. And so we have a lot of the same questions in regards to um, neocolonialism, allyship, etc. And we do some projects together from time to time, but I'm not super invested in that idea. I think it would be better than what we have right now. <laughs> well, I think to open the door for people to even start thinking about watersheds is an important step because mm-hmm. we've been so <laughs> completely disconnected from even knowing what a watershed means when we right. are having our creeks and our streams and our rivers concreted over and getting our water from a tap you know, water is a really important place to start considering what's going on around us, who's in control of the resources, and how do we protect not only for humans, but for the animals and the plants and the earth that needs to have the water recharged in that land. So I'm, I think the watershed movement just just really getting back to that foundational life source that we all need to survive. Like you'd said earlier, you know, we need, if we don't drink water within three days, we could die. So it's, it's a pretty huge uh, area of importance. So with rewilding, there's a lot of information now, you know, it's kind of trendy. I was Googling rewild the other day and there was this website that came up that you have to pay a fee and they tell you to go on a hike. And it was like, wait, what's going on here? <laughs> um, but I really am appreciative that you have held 
the intention of rewilding to be community-based and raw. It's not about just taking and it's not about personal gain or personal psychological uh, empowerment or enlightenment. It's connecting back to this bigger life force and giving back. Right. And I'd, I'd love to just you know, just go a little deeper into some tangible ways of how we can all give back and rewilding. I think, again, learning native food plants and planting a native food garden in your place. There's so many different ways. Protecting your water from Nestle. There's giving back by planting more and there's giving back by preventing further destruction of habitat. And in my mind, planting more is also giving back, also means giving back to the native populations of your region, finding out a way that you can um, assist them in continuing to do their cultural practices. And I would like to quickly say, since we were talking about that kind of before too, that there's this idea of a white savior um, where you have like a dances with wolves or an avatar where indigenous people are saved by a white person. And that's really distasteful and kind of disgusting. And so when I'm, when I'm talking about helping them out, what I'm talking about is asking them what they want. How can you help them to keep their traditions alive? Sometimes I might involve, you know, donating money to a language program or just showing up and helping out at a planting or anything. But it, I think really it's just show up and listen and learn and become friends with individuals um, because they're, they're, there's, everybody's different, you know? And so that's kind of why this conversation about how to be an ally is sort of all over the place because everybody has a different idea of what that means, you know? And so the best way to do that is to just start helping out and listen and become friends with somebody and then, and then you'll be allies because <laughs> you'll know how to help them and what they need. I mean, it's just, to me, it's just the respectful thing to do is uh, plant back native foods, help out native people and prevent further destruction from going on. So any way you can look into doing that, um, I think those are the three sort of steps that I would take. Well, thank you for bringing up the um, this idea of the white savior because I think another way that the dominant culture has conditioned people is this power feeling of we have the answer but whether you've taken permaculture courses you know whatever community we're going into step back and listen be respectful and ask questions don't just go in with right. the answer quote unquote right. because again you know that could be this neo-colonialism that you spoke so eloquently about earlier so just one more shout out you would mind listing the websites that people can be involved in and where to find rewild portland and more of the information sure. that you're teaching rewildportland.com if you're in the portland oregon area rewild.com if you're international and looking for stuff. We also have a Facebook group for that. That's the rewild.com Facebook group. Um, and then uh, my personal blog is urbanscout.org. And I'm just recently going to re-release uh, the collection of essays that I wrote as Urban Scout called Rewild or Die. 
um, the original edition I self-published and was very, uh, I didn't have a copy editor because I couldn't afford it. <laughs> so <laughs> the book was full of typos and misspellings and things. And uh, finally, I've had a copy editor go through it. And I changed a couple of things to make it a little less uh, instigatory. <laughs> it's still instigatory. Urban, that, <laughs> Urban Scout's whole essence, I should say, is uh, to be sort of inflammatory. Um, I'm not really like that, but that's the the muse that I hear um, <laughs> that is Urban Scout. And so uh, I kind of diminished that year a couple of years ago to start Rewild Portland because you can't really be inflammatory when you're trying to create multiple bridges between organizations locally. <laughs> um, I'm doing a complete rewrite that's, uh, that's not going to be really the same book at all. But the, the book will be available here pretty soon, Rewild or Die. Um, it'll be available on my website, urbanscout.org, or probably the big, terrible website like Amazon.com. Um, but, you know, getting the word out, it's, uh, it's a pretty funny little collection of essays about rewilding. So I recommend it, even though I've, I wrote it. Of course, I'm going to recommend it. <laughs> well, I will second that. I love the work that you do. I'm so appreciative that you are being so active in this movement, in this fight for our earth and I'd love to collaborate in the future with native plants and restoration and um, I'd love for any of the audience to get involved with Peter right now and just what's going on in your area and try to start things in your area go to your local grange or your community center and just start bringing people together and we can all make a difference starting today Thank you for having me on here. This is awesome. Thank <laughs> I'm really, you, Peter. I'm really appreciative of all your interviews. This is a great series. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. for joining us on Unlearn and Rewild. We were speaking today with Peter Michael Bauer. The music you heard was Little Wheel Spin and Spin by Buffy St. Marie and Mbugel by the Senegalese Aminata Fall. Our theme song is Like a River by Kate Wolf and our producer is March Young.